So let's say you're a coach and you need a few players on your team. Among the qualities you want, I doubt sluggish would be one of them. To be sluggish is to lose the game. Or let's say you own a business. Sluggishness will mean you lose profits. Or let's say you go to work as usual. There's lots to accomplish before Friday. One of the last things you'd want to be is sluggish. You'd lose your job. If you're a runner, you know that sluggishness will mean 5K to couch and not the other way around. We encounter the word sluggish in our passage, but it doesn't mean losing the game, losing your job, or losing the race. Far more seriously, it means losing your soul. God has spoken a word in his son, and to become sluggish in hearing that word puts your soul at risk of eternal judgment. We've reached another warning passage, and we're covering... 511 all the way to chapter 6 verse 12 it's a big chunk uh, but it hangs together as a unit Uh, the concern in verse 11 is that the church has become dull or sluggish in their hearing it's the same word that appears later in verse 12 where we see the purpose of why he's writing so that you may not be Sluggish, only two places in the New Testament that that this word occurs. So this word sluggish brackets the section, and the, the whole point is to move us out of it and into earnest faithfulness. Remember, we're dealing here with a group of Jewish Christians wavering in their commitment to Jesus, and part of that is due to persecution, but the other part is due to the the growing passivity. Uh, among, among the saints, and we're getting some of that here. In fact, it wouldn't be too surprising if the passivity is connected to the persecution, especially if their persecutors are Jewish. So you could imagine them wrestling. You know, why keep suffering like this? Wouldn't our old ways in Judaism be easier? Didn't God speak in the old covenant as well? Let's go back to Judaism. Hey, it's got some things in common with Christianity anyway. And so instead of maturing in the gospel of Jesus, they become passive to it. They they grow sluggish in their hearing of it, and they slowly drift away. They drift backwards. And this warning is a wake-up call that to grow sluggish in hearing the gospel is to risk destroying your soul. To keep that from happening, he makes four moves in his pastoral care. The first, he confronts the problem of sluggish immaturity. He confronts the problem of sluggish immaturity. He just introduced Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and we're all tuned in, ready for him to explain Melchizedek, but that's not where he goes. Right? Instead, he shocks them with this alarming problem. About this, we have much to say, and, and he will say later in chapter 7 what he's going to talk about, but, but right now, he says, it's hard to explain since you have become dull, sluggish of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the problem is a kind of immaturity that results from becoming sluggish in hearing, and in particular they become sluggish in hearing the word of righteousness. Verse 13. Now, the word of righteousness could be understood a number of ways. Some have equated it with uh, the oracles of God in verse 12. Um, Others uh, uh, see it as the moral teachings uh, of Christianity. Others uh, as the word about Christ's righteousness for us. Uh, Maybe so, uh, but I take the word of righteousness to be the gospel of the new covenant in Christ. So let me explain it this way. We already know these Christians are on the brink of reverting to their old ways in in Judaism. We also know that the major thrust of Hebrews is, is to keep them from doing that by revealing the glories of Christ in the new covenant. And so constantly, Hebrews is stressing the inferiority of the old covenant and how it's brought to its perfection or maturity in the new In other words, to revert to the Old Covenant is like moving backwards from maturity. Backwards. Not that it's no longer important, the Old Covenant, but that it had a goal in Christ. And they're ignoring the message about Christ, which was announced in the word of righteousness. And so there's a contrast. There's the child, and the child needs Milk, and that milk consists of the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, Galatians 4.3 uses the same word to describe the law in its various limitations and inferiority to what has now come in Christ. By contrast, then, there's the mature, the adult who feeds on solid food, and that solid food is the word of righteousness or the gospel that has come in Christ. It's the fulfillment of the oracles of God under the Old Covenant. So don't think in terms of shallow versus deep theology. Think in terms of shadow versus substance in Christ. The substance has come, but they're growing more and more content with mere shadows. The epic has been completed. They're still playing around with their ABCs. Even worse, they've become really happy with the ABCs and turned a dull ear to the gospel. They know the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 4 even said that God confirmed that gospel in their midst with mighty signs and wonders and various miracles. But over time, they've slipped away from treasuring the importance of that gospel. Several years have passed. He says, by now, you should have all been teachers of the gospel. But now they need someone to rehash the beginning elements of the Old Testament itself. He's got to rehash the beginning elements that preceded the gospel. He's not shaming them merely for not knowing. He's shaming them because of what they did know already in the gospel and how much time has passed with no growth, no maturity, no skills to discern good from evil. 
In other words, Melchizedek isn't hard to explain because God's word is just too dadgum complicated. It's hard to explain because they've lost interest in Jesus. The problem is a moral one, not an intellectual one. They haven't wanted to learn more. To learn more about Jesus would require more of them. To learn more would mean serious changes in their life choices. To learn more might very well welcome persecution. Have you ever been reluctant to learn more about Jesus because you've wanted to keep living another way instead? You know that to come to the Word and learn more about Jesus would mean, and you, you confess Him as Lord, you, to come and learn more about what He teaches means, oh man, I've got to give that up and that up and change this over here. And so you're reluctant. I don't want to grow up. And the result is immaturity. That, that's happening here. They, they ought to be adults feasting on the new covenant, but they're still toying around with the old. At the end, we'll circle back to this uh, for a very practical lesson. But for now, let's observe another move in his pastoral care. Next, he exhorts them to earnest maturity. He exhorts them to earnest maturity. Notice, notice how the we versus you now becomes let us. Let us go on to maturity. In other words, he meets them where they're at, even if by way of sharp rebuke, and then he takes them by the arm and says, come on, come with me. Let us, he says, therefore, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, what does he mean here about leaving the elementary doctrines of Christ and, 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 giving, and then giving us this, this smattering of examples. Many take this as describing basic Christianity, kind of the entry-level stuff. That, that he's not saying to leave them altogether, but to build on them and go deeper in Christian doctrine. And, and that has some merit. The difficulty is that it doesn't adequately explain the instruction about washings and laying on of hands. And that becomes even more apparent when you get to chapter 9, verse 10, and he's talking about washings, the same word he uses here, and there he's talking about food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So he's talking about the various cleansing rites under the Old Covenant imposed until the time of Christ. And so here's what I think is happening, and you can test this for yourself. These Christians have begun to reduce their Christianity to the things it could broadly hold in common with Judaism. There's nothing distinctly Christian about this list. All of these things, repentance from dead works, faith in God, washings, laying on of hands, resurrection, judgment, they were all taught in the Old Testament. This has become an easy way for them to escape persecution. I'll just reduce my Christianity to what it holds in common with my Jewish persecutors. After all, didn't God reveal them in the first place? You teach, you teach repentance and faith in God? Oh, so do we. 
You have various kinds of washings? Yeah, we do too. Baptism. You lay hands on priests and kings? Well, we lay hands on missionaries and sick people. We teach resurrection and judgment too. And by doing this, though, they ignore the greatness of the new covenant and shy away from explicitly proclaiming Christ in the face of opposition. Now you may ask, well then, what's the point of him calling these things the doctrine of Christ? Literally, the doctrine of the Christ. I think he means it in the sense that all these basic elementary things under the old covenants were pointers to the Christ, the Messiah. They were about him all along, and now he's come. What are you doing reducing your message to exclude him? In other words, they're compromising the gospel by reducing it. They're staying immature by feeding on the shadows when the substance has come in Christ. He says, therefore, let us leave these these elementary things. They had their place. Now let's be taken forward to maturity under the new and better covenant. The foundation has been laid. Let's get on with the masterpiece, by golly. And so he's ready to take them there. He's ready to get them feasting on the new covenant in Christ. At the same time, he knows that if there's to be any change at all, it will be God's doing. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. If God permits. You mean God might not permit them to go on to maturity? Yes, that's what he means. There are some people who will grow so sluggish in hearing the gospel that God will refuse to mature them. Instead, he will judge them as enemies. That's the next move in his pastoral care. He warns them that eternal judgment awaits those who fall away from Christ. He warns them that eternal judgment awaits those who fall away from Christ. Verse 4. For it's impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Whoa. What does that mean? Now, some have argued that, that he's describing a loss of rewards or a loss of honor in Christian service somehow. But this warning... I have to say, comes alongside a smattering of others in, in Hebrews, that, 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 and they all form a coherent whole. The falling away here means the same thing that he did in chapter 3 with the falling away from the living God, or, or, or chapter 4, verse 1, the failing to enter God's rest, or, or chapter 10, verse 27, the fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is no loss of rewards or loss of Christian service. This is eternal judgment he's talking about. 
Others have argued that he's describing genuine Christians. And verses 4 to 8 imply they can lose their salvation. However, several observations keep me from going there as well. Some come from Romans 8 and John 6 and Philippians 1 and Revelation 13. But the main ones come from Hebrews itself. I think the writer of Hebrews has taught us how to understand this passage already in chapter 3, verse 6 and 14. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 6, you remember how he puts it there. We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And then he reiterates the same point in chapter 3, verse verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And we talked about it there that, that it seems best to read verses 6 to 14 as evidence to inference conditions, not a cause to affect conditions, but an evidence to inference condition. Here's what that means. And I'll use the same example I used a while back. If she has a ring on her left hand, that's the evidence. What's the inference? Then she's married. Okay? Having the ring doesn't cause her to be married. It's the evidence that she's married. So also here in chapter 3, holding fast is the evidence that we belong to God's house. Holding fast is the evidence that we've come to share in Christ. Point being, true Christians will persevere. A faith that does not persevere isn't a true faith. The proof that we are genuine is seen in perseverance. And that's the point of the land illustration in verses 7 to 8. You have two different kinds of land. Both receive the same rain. But the evidence of their true state comes in what they produce. One produces a useful crop. The other bears thorns and thistles. And the point being, only one land, based on what it produces, proves to be the, 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 the right one, the good one. The other represents those who receive the same rain, the same experiences, but remain cursed, and their end is to be burned. So the way I'm reading the warning is like this. There are people who experience many of the same things a genuine Christian may experience and eventually decide to reject Jesus. Many can be enlightened. According to chapter 10, verse 32, it seems to to mean coming to know the gospel. They were taught about Jesus, and they understood it. Many can taste the heavenly gift. In Hebrews, that means they they grasp the the heavenly realities coming to fruition in in the new age. Many can even share in the Holy Spirit. In some sense, they know his power and they know his presence. Many can taste the goodness of God's word and the powers of the age to come. These folks witness the signs and the wonders and the various miracles. And yet, that doesn't mean they truly belong to God. These people are like the first three soils in Jesus' parable. In fact, they sound a whole lot like the second soil. It's the ones that receive the word with joy 
That's comprehension, isn't it? You receive the gospel message with joy. You give thanks. You comprehend what it means. With joy they received it. And then it says, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, of word immediately he falls away. They are the ones in, John, in 1 John 2.19 who went out from us. But they were never really of us. They are like Judas. Judas was numbered among the apostles. Judas performed miracles with the other 70. Talk about an experience of the Spirit casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And yet he walked away as an enemy of Christ. Likewise, some may experience many of the same realities of the new age in Christ and yet prove to be enemies in the end. And that's what he means by crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. When Josh Harris and Derek Webb and others like them walk away from Jesus, what they're actually saying is that Jesus deserved what he got on the cross. Jesus deserved to die. The falling away here isn't merely like kind of stumbling into sin, only later to feel conviction and, and, and turn back to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. Nor is it straying for a time, only, only to repent later and, and return to his mercy. The falling away is more so, I don't find Jesus that compelling anymore. Falling away is truly knowing who he is. Truly knowing what that joy means. Truly knowing what the, the new age is bringing. Truly grasping what his cross accomplished and then saying, you're not worthy of my life anymore. You're not worthy of my time or my attention anymore. That's the attitude here. In other words, there comes a point for that person when it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, meaning God won't do it. It's not that he's incapable. All things are possible with God. The point is that he won't do it. That's the warning. That's the seriousness of it. And it ought to strike fear in all of us. Because there's not a professing Christian in this room who can't go through this list and identify with every one of these experiences. The question is, have you become sluggish in hearing the gospel of Jesus? Have you been a Christian for a long time and not matured? And not grown up into adulthood and not gotten to a place where you can teach others the glories of Christ. If that's you, then he's saying, wake up. You're putting yourself at risk. You're, you're at risk of destroying your soul with all the others who despise Christ and belittle his sacrifice. Don't blow this off. Don't treat it lightly. 
The Bible gives no assurance, zero assurance to people who cease chasing hard after Jesus. Heed the warning. Evaluate your pursuit of Christ. Evaluate whether you've grown sluggish in hearing. One more move in his pastoral care. He reassures them of better things. He reassures them of better things. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Notice the shift in pronouns. It's important. In chapter 6, verse 4, it was, it's impossible in the case of those. Now, verse 9, yet in your case, beloved, he's quite hopeful that they don't belong to that other group. They're going to listen. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Wow, what, a, what an encouragement after such a stark warning. He's certain of better things. He sees the fruit of their life. They're not like the field bearing thorns and thistles. They're producing a good crop. They work and love to spread God's name. They serve the saints faithfully. And God sees it all. You know, one of the hardest parts in Christian service is that many times it goes overlooked. You love and you sacrifice and you spend yourself like crazy for others with no thank you, no immediate payoff, no visible results, maybe sometimes for years. And we're tempted in those moments to just quit. Why bother if it doesn't matter anymore? And the Holy Spirit says here, oh, it does matter. It matters in the most significant way God notices. God is just. God will reward. God will not, be, uh, will not only be just to judge his enemies, God will also be just to reward those who live for his name. Why would he reward those who live for his name? Because God loves his name above everything. He's committed to his name. And if you're committed to his name, he's committed to you. There's no greater name to live for. So he's committed to rewarding whoever works and loves and serves to make his name great. Which means don't stray away from serving him fully and wholeheartedly and zealously, right? Keep serving and working and loving to show that his name is great. And in that light, he closes this way. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness. Each one of you, not just the elders in the church, not just the deacons and their wives in the church, not just the care group leaders. Each one of you show the same earnestness. 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end, it says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And there's the goal of his pastoral care, to compel them out of their sluggishness, out of their immaturity, out of their childish ways and into this earnest, faithful, patient obedience. Why? Because sweet promises await for those who persevere. For those who endure, an unbelievable inheritance awaits them. And we're going to talk more about that next week. For now, I'd like to close with a few ways this passage should impact us. One, if you are contemplating leaving Jesus, if you're not very impressed with Jesus anymore, please hear this warning from God's Word. It is impossible in the case of those who know and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Don't think for a moment, I'm not so sure about this Jesus stuff anymore. I'm going to go try something else for a while, and if that turns out to be rotten, I'll come back to him. You don't know that. Don't be so confident that you'll come back to him. Many others have said the same things, never to return to him again. Esau will become an example later in Hebrews chapter 10, and he found no place for repentance. He walked away. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He didn't care about God's kingdom as much as he wanted sexual immorality. And he found no place for repentance. Moreover, God will not tolerate you spitting in his son's face and belittling his sacrifice. Jesus was crucified not because he deserved it. He hung with shame on the cross not because he deserved to be held in contempt by you. He bled and died because that's what you deserved for your sins. That's what we deserve for defaming God's name. Don't hold Jesus Christ, the righteous one, up to contempt by walking away. He is crowned with glory and honor and might. He's coming again to judge. He's worthy of all your worship. Some of you may worry that you've already taken that step. That you've, you've already gone too far. If there is any sense of conviction right now, you're not too far. <laughs> Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come to him. Repent. Turn. And, and follow him. For those of you who've grown sluggish in hearing the gospel, let's move on to maturity. A number of you have been Christians for a long time now. But there's been little growth. Some of you have been Christians a number of years and you ought to have been teachers by now.
But there's been little growth, little interest, excuses about busyness, excuses about study, just not being your thing. Listen, the expectation isn't that you all serve in a leadership position. But the expectation is that you're at least able to instruct one another in the gospel. That, that's actually a sign of a healthy church and of a healthy church member. In Romans chapter 15, verse 14, Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, church, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and, get this, able to instruct one another. Able to instruct one another. Is that you? And if it's not you, then why? Have you grown sluggish in hearing the gospel? Are, 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 there, are there things you know that you should be learning about Jesus, but haven't wanted to learn them because it would mean changing your life, changing your patterns, changing the way you spend your money, changing your friends, changing your job? Maturing in ways that may very well exclude family members from your life. Or perhaps you've found some new way to reduce your Christianity to what it holds in common with the world. To what it holds in common with the opposition. Have you settled into childish ways and become so used to them that childish ways are your new normal? In fact, maybe even worse, you start making fun of all the serious Christians out there. Those guys are just radical. And it kind of gives you yourself a way out. We're normal. They're radical. And I think the point of radical was, was an intentional illusion, is that that's normal Christianity. Not radical, that's Christianity. Little orange book. If you haven't read it, read it. Instead of radical, you could just say Christianity. Watch out, beloved. If this is you, you're in danger of falling away with the others. It's not enough just to benefit from hearing. We must also press on to such maturity that we're able to teach others. So feast on the solid food of the gospel of Christ. Feast on the glories of the new covenant. We're talking about the Lord of the universe here. Getting to know him. Getting to, to behold his worth. Getting to, to understand his power and his salvation. And what was, Tim was talking to us about yesterday at the men's breakfast. What he's been doing since the beginning to, to bring this world to its desired end in Christ. And then plead with the Lord to mature you. Ultimately, it's his work. Pray that none of us in here grows sluggish in hearing, but that all of us reach maturity in the Savior. And I'm including the elders in that. Pray for us. 
that we do not grow sluggish in hearing. Next, imitate the Spirit's counsel and care in Hebrews. Imitate the Spirit's counsel and care in Hebrews. This is a good pattern here for encouraging the saints out of their laziness. He helps them see the problem. He doesn't fear the confrontation. And then he exhorts them to join him in maturing, right? The the writer here. He doesn't come with an attitude of, well, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do that. He says, let us. Come on. Come with me. Come on. The food is better at his table. Let's go eat there. And then he also warns them. Too often we're afraid of warning people. It does take discernment on when we should warn somebody. But it needs to be present in our counseling. And especially when people are wandering away from Jesus and and giving into sin and growing passive. To shy away from warnings in scripture is to say that we know how to keep the church persevering better than God does. And that's not true. Embrace the warnings as God mean, as God's means to keep us. At the same time, no, don't neglect assurance where that's appropriate. We see that in, the, in this passage as well. He gives, no, he gives no assurance of salvation to the people falling away. But for those who are persevering in good works and love and serving the saints, he has words of assurance for them. We feel sure of better things, beloved, things belonging to salvation. Encourage one another when you see good fruit. Point it out. Isn't it encouraging when, 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 when you hear someone say, Brother, the, the Lord really used you to strengthen me the other day. Sister, you, you said this at care group the other day that you were struggling with, with this a while back, but I've seen the Lord mature you in, his, in, in your love for his people. And then finally, a word, a word to those who've been laboring in love for a long while now, but have seen little results in your ministry, little results in your marriage, little results in your parenting, in your evangelism efforts of family and friends, and in your service of this church, perhaps. Some of you labor hard to see your care group members maturing in the gospel. But some days you wonder if anybody, any of them really even cares what you're doing. Some of you ladies pray together regularly for the church. Others of you serve behind the scenes and rarely do you hear, thank you. I hope you're strengthened by verse 10 today. God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. God sees you. God notices. He will reward you accordingly and he will not forget anything that you've done for his name. Revelation has some words about this, that to the one who endures, he will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who endures, he will give them the crown of life. He will 
make you a pillar in God's temple. He will grant you to sit with him on his throne. Just as he conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. There is no greater reward than that. There is no greater crown to receive than the one that God the Father places on your head. So stay faithful. Keep persevering. The inheritance is ours. We'll talk more about that next week. And God sees you. When we take the supper.